happening. Here we go. All right. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, yeah, my name is Megan Congdon, and I am just a lady who goes here. Um, <laughs> And I do want to say, it was probably about a year and a half ago that Josh first asked me if I would be interested in coming up to preach. And I want to say it has been a long road in many ways for me to get here. So, Josh, thank you for both pastoring and pestering me. Um, yeah, and I'm very grateful. I'm very like cognizant and grateful as I come up here that... Um, this is my family, and I know all of you, and you are all very kind, gracious, forgiving people. So, so that's really, really a blessing. Okay, so we are in this sermon series on Acts 2 called Ecclesia, and we're largely focusing on verses 42 through 47, which center on the identity and character as well as the actions of the early church. And for anyone who may just be joining us for the first time today, or just as a reminder, um, some context. The book of Acts opens with Jesus promising his disciples that the Holy Spirit will be coming and then he ascends to heaven. And then right away in chapter two, Jews from all over are gathered together in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, which is also known as the Festival of Weeks for anyone who wants to be super nerdy and dig into that later. And then all of a sudden there's this loud wind and what looks like tongues of fire settling on people and all these people are filled with the Holy Spirit and they're talking about the magnificent acts of God in a multitude of languages. After that, Peter, steps up and delivers a rager of a sermon, and at the end of which it says they were pierced to the heart. Such beautiful language. Peter calls everyone to repent and be baptized, and that day, 3,000 people come to know Jesus. That leads us to our passage, which I'm going to read in its entirety, and then we're gonna really hone in on verses 42 and 46. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> I didn't even have to give instructions, you guys. That was awesome. Okay, so this is this is it actually very, very interesting. Something extremely cool is happening here, and in order to understand it a bit better, I want to pull you back into some Old Testament big picture stuff. All these devout Jews from all over the world were gathered together in Jerusalem for this festival, and it's largely accepted that these events would have taken place at the temple. To be honest, entire studies could and have been written about the temple, and obviously we don't have time to delve into all of it today, um, but there are a couple functions of the temple that I want us to keep in mind. Firstly, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, first the tabernacle and then the temple was the place where God's spirit resided. 
In Exodus 25, 8, God says, they are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. So the temple was a place for God's spirit to dwell, for God's presence to dwell. And this idea of God being among or with his people is repeated all throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 31, 8, he will be with you. He will not leave you or abandon you. Isaiah 41, 10, do not fear, for I am with you. Joshua 1, 9, do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then, of course, this idea is made perfect in the coming of Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. The word means God with us. Jesus, truly and physically, God with us. And I am not a seminary-trained theologian with a perfect understanding of the entire theological lexicon, but I do know this, that Jesus Christ came to save us and to reveal the Father, and he did that by setting aside his glory, becoming a human being, showing us what God is like in word and in deed, fulfilling the requirements of the law through his perfection, dying as a substitute for me and for you, defeating death and robbing the grave of its power, and then raising again to life that we might walk in freedom and victory with him. But it's even better than that. Because here's what happens in this new covenant brought forth by Jesus. God's spirit now resides in his people. Romans 8.10 says, Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. In John 14.17, Jesus says, He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. And Colossians 1.27 reads, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. As a result of Jesus' work on the cross, we have moved from God with us to God within us. We have become a holy place. You are now a holy place. I am a holy place. The second function of the temple that I want to talk about is a little bit extra nerdy. And if you do want to explore this later in more depth, you can find this whole information laid out in Deuteronomy 14. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God's people were actually required to give three separate tithes. One was set aside for the upkeep and preservation of the temple. One was set aside for the feasts, which interestingly was literally a social provision and essentially a vacation fund. And thirdly, one to be collected and distributed as a covering for the Levite, the fatherless, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. This was a community project meant to meet a neighbor's need. This tithe would be brought to the temple and distributed from the temple. So now, under the new covenant, the body of Christ as the temple is the designated place for a person in need to experience God's kindness and the healing power of his presence. God's design for his temple is also as a place of fellowship. In the Old Testament, despite class disparities 
or tribal rivalries, everyone came together to worship the one God in the temple. And in the same way, despite our vast differences, ranging from race to socioeconomic class to favorite political party to whether or not we think a woman should preach, we all come together as the body of Christ to worship in unity. We have one God whom we worship in spirit and in truth, and one ambition, which is to see lost souls redeemed to Jesus Christ. So with that scene set, let's go back to our passage. Here's the very first church. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We've got teaching, which most likely is following the pattern of Peter's sermon, which refers which is laser-focused on making Christ known. That's the, that's the whole focus of his sermon, right? Um, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which refers primarily to the Lord's Supper, to communion, remembering what Jesus has done through the act of communion, and prayer, staying in conversation with God. And in this verse, we see this word, koinonia. This word is often translated as community, and especially godly community. And here, it's translated as fellowship. And if we jump down quickly to verse 44, we see a similar word, koinos, which is translated as in common. So these, these words have the same root, and we've got two different words being translated out of them. So in the early church, fellowship, koinonia, means having all things in common, koinos. And at first blush, we might think of our usual definitions of fellowship. Can anyone, anyone suggest, like, what, what comes to mind when you think of the word fellowship? Eating together. Potlucks. Did you say, I'm sorry, I wanted to hear what you said. I, okay, that's fine. Okay, you know, another one I hear often is like conversation together, you know, just sort of like being in each other's presence, right? That idea. But actually, that is not what Luke uses as an illustration for this point. He immediately segues um, into this like really interesting picture. Um, Pastor John Piper puts it this way. The believers were so bonded that if someone was in need, the others did not feel they had the right to live on in prosperity without giving up something to meet the need. Fellowship was the act of covering each other and bearing each other's burdens and giving things up to meet each other's needs. That's how he's illustrating fellowship. That's some powerful stuff, man. <laughs> and it does sound very nice to listen to, but it's actually like pretty intense and heavy, right? Um, and I do want to say, I know something about myself, and I find that marriage has made this all the more clear, and that is that I am a very selfish person, <laughs> as it turns out. I like to be fed and comfortable and prioritized, preferably all the time, constantly. And if you're being honest, you probably also are that way. <laughs> So this type of relating to one another is very unnatural. It does not come naturally to us, okay? Um, this is not a prescriptive passage. And what I mean by that is this is not written out as this is the way you should do things because it is. This is what happened. It's a descriptive passage because it was fueled and empowered by the grace of Jesus. Okay? Is that clicking? This is the result of people turning their lives over to Jesus and receiving the Spirit. This is why they are able to relate this way. 
Relationship is a delicate subject. In general, relationship as a concept. I do have a question. Has anyone ever been hurt in any way in any form of relationship? <laughs> I have questions for some of you. I don't know, I'm just Okay, <laughs> harder question. Has anybody hurt another person in any way in any relationship? Yeah, right. So, even though we know and understand empirically through our own experience that relationships are difficult and costly, we recognize in this exposition of the early church that they are essential. So why would God design his church this way? Surely it would be easier if we could just show up on Sunday morning, eat the cookies and leave, do our own thing, stay in our own lane, walk our own path, just me and God, we're figuring it out, right? That would be easier. But just like in the early church, God has called us to a new way to relate. An unexpected way to relate. And why? I think you will see the answer to that question in the final verse of this chapter. We see the early church in joyful fellowship, sharing meals, praising God, and then what happens? Every day, the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. That's the result of relating in this new way empowered by Christ. When we relate to one another in the freedom and beauty and unity of Christ, we have the privilege of being his invitation. You are his invitation. You're probably familiar with John 13, 35, where it says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our love for one another is meant to be what sets us apart and what makes Jesus obvious. There is a really famous piece of literature and church tradition called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it's basically a summary of Christian doctrine, and it's written in question and answer format. And the first and most foundational question is, what is the chief end of man? Does anybody know the answer to that question? Yes. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I knew Mark would know the answer to that question. <laughs> I tried not to like look right over at him, but he got it. <laughs> That is the design for purpose for every individual. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And when we operate out of the grace of Christ, empowered by the Spirit, and we relate to one another in this supernaturally loving way, we are pantomiming God's invitation to the world. Relationship within the church and within the body of Christ helps us to glorify God and enjoy him forever and invites others to do the same. And if we're being absolutely real with one another, which I hope we are, while yes, through Christ, relating this way is possible, relationships still take a lot of work. A lot of work. And a big part of that, in my opinion, is in the forming stages. When you're forming relationships with one another, um, in his book, The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, the writer John Koenig coined this term adronitis, 
And this was like part of a meme that circulated a few years ago, so you might be familiar with this, but it means the frustration with the amount of time required to become truly familiar with someone. You've all felt that, right? Like you felt like when you're just starting to get to notice someone and you're like, like I don't even know if they have brothers, like I don't know what their favorite food is, if they have allergies, like, you know. To know someone on a deep level, to know their hopes, their fears, their struggles, their giftings, what brings them joy, and their story takes a lot of time and investment. And if we hold ourselves back in this Instagram, social media world and only let people see the highlight reel and what's curated, it takes even longer. And so that's where I would like to challenge you with this idea that vulnerability is relational efficiency. Um, our son Gus is two and a half, and our daughter Sersha is eight months old. Um, so we're in the middle of it, y'all. Um, but in the early days of human existence, there are all kinds of systems that don't quite work all the way yet, and you know they're figuring it out. But one of the biggest culprits for parental frustration is sleep, or the lack thereof. Um, and when you have a baby who's learning how to sleep and constantly going through growth spurts and sleep regressions and their circadian rhythms like um, you're in this haze of exhaustion and you're trying to, like you're doing everything in your power to get them to sleep, right? And there's this really important truth that you learn because here's what you start thinking. I know what he needs. I'm going to run him ragged. I'm not going to let him have his nap. I'm going to like send him outside all day. I'm going to chase him around. I'm going to put him to bed late. And then finally then he will sleep in until 7 o'clock in the morning. But no, he still wakes up at 5.30 and he's running around screaming and smashing things on other things and you're crying into your coffee. Um, but here's what you learn. You learn that sleep begets sleep. If you make sure that he gets like a good solid nap early in the day, Weirdly and counterintuitively, it makes them sleep better and longer at night. Sleep begets sleep. Exhaustion does not beget sleep. It doesn't make any sense to me, but I did not design the world. Thank goodness I did not. But in the same way, withdrawal and holding our resources doesn't beget better relationship. Relationship begets relationship. If you're anything like me, it can be so tempting to withhold to protect ourselves, to protect our time, our energy, our emotional bandwidth. And we can take this sort of self-preserving stance and hold back in relationships, convincing ourselves that's the best way to make everything work. But really, just like exhaustion is not the answer in toddler sleep, withholding is not the answer in our relationships. When we do it, when we just do it, we discover that it's like working out a muscle. And the more you do it, the easier it gets and the better it gets. But digging in to deep, grace-filled, life-giving relationship does require sacrifice. I really, I'm like, I'm so excited about this. In John 21, 15 to 17, there's this very famous exchange between Jesus and the Apostle Peter. It says, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. 
shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. This passage is often referred to as Jesus' threefold restoration of Peter. So previously, Peter had denied Jesus three times, and here Jesus is giving Peter the chance to proclaim his devotion, his love for him, three times. But there is also something deeper happening that we don't see unless we look at the original language. I'm telling you, it pays to be a nerd. So, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me three times? And three times Peter responds, you know that I love you. But as you may already know, there are multiple words in the Greek language for the word love that we translate just to love. There's eros, the romantic love, storge, which is like familial love, philia, which is friendship love, and agape, the love of God, the most transcendent, supernatural, highest form of love. So here, Peter, Jesus asks Peter, do you agapau me, agape? And Peter responds, Lord, you know I phileo you. Jesus asks again, do you agapau me? And Peter responds, Lord, you know I phileo you. Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me with the unconditional, sacrificial love that can only come from God? And Peter is responding, Lord, I am very fond of you. I love you like a really good friend. It's interesting because Peter's natural ability to love finds its terminus at the peak of philia, the friendship love, right? But Jesus is persistent because he is calling Peter to a higher place. He's calling us to a higher place. And Jesus associates this agape love with feeding and shepherding his lambs. He's showing Peter that his, this agape love for Jesus can be demonstrated by serving and meeting the needs of the body of Christ. And I do want to make one side note here, and that's that the third time Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, he does say, do you phileo me? And I believe that this reveals that while Jesus does call us to a higher place, he also meets, meets us where we are. <laughs> he meets me where I am. <laughs> And he empowers us to grow in the breadth and depth and height of God's love. And I think that's really important. Agape is God's love for us. It's sacrificial love. And again, this is a delicate subject. Okay. Sacrifice, by definition, is painful. Sacrifice is more than just a scoop off of the top of an excess of something. Okay, that's a really important distinction. In sacrifice, something has to die. And that might be expectations, or certainty, or comfort, or time to yourself, or being heroic. Sometimes, um, sometimes it's sacrifice to say no, to not be a yes man. Um, sometimes it's being presented with opportunities and saying no as an act of faith, when we make space for somebody else to step into a good work that Jesus has for them. But whatever it looks like, sacrifice is painful. And regardless, we do not need 
to avoid or fear that pain because pain is not our enemy. Pain is a tool. And that said, I do, I do just want to have a disclaimer here and say that if you are in any kind of an abusive situation, um, I'm not advocating that you stay there in the name of sacrifice. That is not at all what I am talking about. I am talking about giving something up for the growth and health and joy and peace of the body of Christ, um, which is something entirely different. And sometimes that giving up is painful, but the pain of giving something up can benefit us. And I do have to laugh because this entire past week, I was trying to squirrel away time to work on this message. And I was honestly getting so frustrated. And I was praying to God and I was like, God, can you help me out here? I'm really trying, like I need to work on this sermon about sacrificial love for others, but people keep asking me to do stuff. <laughs> And then God was gracious with me and patient, and he just sat in silence with me until I went, oh, you're illustrating it in my own life. Yeah, yeah sacrifice is hard, um, and relationships are hard, and being a Christian is hard, and life is hard. Um, I hope you're all extremely encouraged right now. Um, but really, like, the reality is that shouldn't offend us. It shouldn't offend us that things are hard, and it should not even surprise us. We, should, we can expect it to be hard, and in Christ we can do hard things. Okay? I think about when I was pregnant with Gus, and I was getting close to the end of my pregnancy. I was getting more and more terrified of giving birth. Um, half of you in this room will never experience that in any way, and some of you have, and some of you may yet still. Um, if you know, you know. So I was feeling more and more afraid and anxious, and I told my best friend, Jillian, that I was really, really struggling with this. And she listened very graciously and said, yeah, it's super hard. It's extremely painful. It's the most painful thing. And you can do it. And I was like, I can do it, you know? When I realized, when, when she said that, I realized that was, my, that was my fear, that I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, that I wouldn't be capable somehow because of the difficulty or the pain, but then I did do it. And it was beautiful and rewarding and life-changing. Very life-changing. You all know Gus here, so. I hope you're really excited about building godly community right now because I am. Okay, let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5.14 for a minute. It says, and we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. This letter is written from Paul to the church in Thessalonica. And while Paul did establish this church, he didn't actually get to spend a lot of time there because his preaching caused a literal riot and he had to escape under the cover of night. Um, needless to say, this letter was full of some very foundational ideas. <laughs> Um, and here in this verse, we see four actions Paul encourages this fledgling church to adopt. Warn, comfort, help, and be patient. Again, examining the language gives us a broader picture for what each of those really mean. The word for warn is sometimes translated as admonish. And it actually has nothing to do with scorn or shame, which might be what comes to mind with those words, but rather it means to put in mind to actually influence someone's thinking 
toward what is good and right. And idle often brings to mind someone who's lazy or maybe even just spiritually stagnant. But here the Greek word means something more like unruly or disorderly. So while we read warn the idle, we can imagine instead inspiring someone unruly toward peace and order. It's a completely different picture when you look at it that way. Um, the word help here literally means cleave to as a physical support, like adhere yourself to, so that someone can like put their weight on you. Be patient has this idea of don't lose heart, don't give up on people. And this word comfort can also be translated as encourage. I, you know, I'm even thinking about it because we've heard the word encourage several times this morning. I'm aware of it because I was looking at it and studying it this week. <laughs> um, and encouraging someone doesn't necessarily just mean like giving them a compliment or consoling them when they've had a rough day, like, oh, I just really need to encourage that person, they're having a hard time, or, you know, like, that person's doing a great job, I want to encourage them, right? It's, it, it's actually to, like, put courage into someone. And frankly, I think one of the best ways we can do this practically is by letting our brothers and sisters watch us do hard things in the power of Christ. You may or may not expect this, but of the two of us, my husband Mike is actually by far the adrenaline junkie. He is a motorcycle riding, skydiving, kite surfing maniac. And I am not those things. I remember one time early in our marriage, we went on a zip lining um, adventure. We went with a group of about eight people, and I was really eager to have this bonding experience, but I was also fairly nervous. And we hiked up with the guide to our first line, and we're all decked out in our gear and our helmets. And I'm looking at the setup where I'm wearing just like a slightly larger than usual belt with like one carabiner. And I'm about to hang off this like 2,000 foot cable, the width of my finger. And I remember the guide giving a spiel, and meanwhile, I'm like considering all of the possible ways things can go wrong, of course, as one does. Uh, and finally, he says, does anybody want to go first? And I was like, thank you very much. I will be at the back of this line, absolutely. And after I watched person after person zip down that line and like wave happily from the other side, like truly with each person, I felt more physically and emotionally prepared to do it myself. Nobody gave me a pep talk. Nobody told me I was super brave or anything like that. It was simply just the act of watching someone else go ahead and wave from the other side. Um, and finally, yes, I did it. And it was super fun. And you should do it if you haven't done it. Um, but really, watching others do hard things gives us courage to do hard things. And that is why it's so important to let our brothers and sisters see us in struggles and in our ministry and in our walk with the Lord. The simple act of walking things out and waving from the other side might be what fills the next person with courage to do the same. So, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And truly, each of us is, at one time or another, on either side of this equation. Sometimes we're the comforter, sometimes we're the discouraged. Sometimes we're the helper, sometimes we're the weak. We take turns needing each other.
So always be ready to give what you have because you'll have your turn. And likewise, always be ready to hold your hands open and receive because there are a few things as beautiful and spiritually invigorating as being held up by your brothers and sisters. Okay, that all sounds great in theory, but how can we live that out in reality? It's, it's too much. How can you have relationships that ideal, right? Here's how. Your vertical relationship flows directly into your horizontal relationships. I want us to understand something, and this is really important. Often we open our Bibles with the intention of figuring out how to do something. Like, how do I be a better wife? But, you know, um, how do I start a business? Or how do I, I don't know, build relationships in my church? The Bible is not a how-to book. It is a whodunit. All right? This entire book, from beginning to end, is about Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It is about him. He made a way. He has begun a good work in you, and he will bring it through to completion, beginning and end. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. So with Sunday School Answer Simplicity, Jesus is the how-to answer for all things through Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus, with Jesus. In God's perfect design, everything in this world is meant to glorify him and demonstrate a truth about his character. To know, enjoy, and honor Jesus is our life's purpose. Everything else is a means to that end. Even our most tender, precious, intimate relationships in this world still only shadow the riches of relationship with Jesus. And not only that, our relationships with others can only truly thrive and deepen when they're infused with God's love. Just like John says in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And here's something so excellent. There is always more of Jesus. We cannot ever exhaust him. Not now, not in eternity. When you pursue him, everything changes. Everything expands. Joy, peace, hope, freedom, endurance, and perhaps most significantly, our capacity to reflect him in our love for others. And because Jesus is eternally completely beautiful and glorious and the source of everything good and precious, we need each other. Okay, because like facets of a diamond, each of us reflects him from a slightly different angle. So friend, I want you to know that you are essential to this body of Christ. Not just the things you do or the ways you serve, but you. Your relationship, your story, your presence, your ideas, your conversation. You are essential to the body of Christ. Each one of us shows everyone else a little more of Jesus. We need each other for that. And he has done it. He has made this path for us to walk in. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord God, uh, I'm just vibrating with joy and excitement over the fact that you are the conqueror, and we get to live in your victory. 
God, that we can just align ourselves with you and operate out of your grace and your goodness, um, that you make all of those treasures of heaven readily accessible to us. So God, I pray that each one of us would just cling all the more tightly to you, that we would, um, God, that we would just align ourselves more and more with you, that we'd be more and more attuned to your spirit, that we would have our ears open, um, that we would be just ready to receive from you, Lord, and ready to pour out. God, I pray that everyone in this room and everyone who's watching um, later or now or whatever, God, that just all of us would be encouraged, that we would be filled with courage to live out uh, a life for your glory and that we would do it, that we would walk through hard things because we know that it is in your power and that you are with us. And not only are you with us, you are within us, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your kindness to us. That we love you. We commit this time to you. We commit these words to you. And we ask you to just transform us to look ever more like you from glory to glory. In Jesus' name, amen.